Romans chapter 1. That's better. There we go. All right. We'll start again. That was weird, even for me, hearing myself talking to myself. It's only supposed to happen in your nightmares. Shaul, or should we say Paul? We'll get into that a little bit later. Shaul, a servant of Yeshua or Yahusha, our Messiah, called to be an apostle, Shaliach, set apart to the gospel of Yahuwah, which he had promised before by his prophets in the scriptures regarding his son, Yahusha, our Messiah, our Savior, who was born of the seed of David in the flesh and declared to be the Son of Yahuwah with power, according to the Holy Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead. It's a powerful introduction. And in fact, like I said last week, this is the longest introduction of any of Shaul's letters Because we've got right here from verse 1 through verse 7, his introduction to the Romans because he had never in fact been to Rome and he didn't know his audience. So thus you have the long introduction. So really this is a letter, a letter of introduction. Hi, how are you doing? This is who I'm at and this is who I am and this is what I am going to proclaim. It was a letter really of self promotion covering some of Paul or Shaul's background in the faith and really it was about establishing his credentials to the audience that he was about to speak and address. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. In fact, many of you may not know this, but this is our creed. This is the creed and was the ancient creed of the first century faith. Verse 3 and 4. This is the creed of our faith. The Son, Yahusha Messiah, our Savior, who was born of the seed of David in the flesh and declared to be the Son of Yahuwah with power, according to the Holy Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead. That's the creed, isn't it? Doesn't that, isn't that just perfectly encapsulate our faith? I think I'm going to learn that, teach that to my children. And then people will say, now, now what, what are you? Are you Christian? Are you Jewish? Are you, what are you? Who are you? What do you believe? And I'll be just like, well, let me tell you. I believe the son, Yahushua Messiah, our savior, who was born of the seed of David in the flesh and declared to be son of Yahuwah with power according to the Holy Spirit by his resurrection from the dead. What are you going to do with that? I love it. That's the creed. Why has that escaped us for so many centuries? I don't know. But let's bring that into play in this congregation. That's the creed of the faith. Now hone in on verses 4 right here because even, and I do love this translation, but as I get into the book of Romans, I'm seeing its flaws as well. Even the Restoration True Name Edition scriptures, the translators there even mess with the meaning of chorizo, the Greek word chorizo, to 
um, which means to designate or to appoint, because I actually said it to you in the translation, which is incorrect, and declared to be the son of Yahweh with power. Don't know if any of you remember the Jesus movie in the late 90s. I watched it around my in-law's house, and I got saved in August 1996. And it must have been come out in maybe 97 or 98. And I remember sitting down, watching it with these believers, my in-laws, and and my father-in-law had been a believer for 30-odd years, you know. And they were all right watching this Jesus movie. And me me and Tamara, we were like, we got to go. I can't watch this. Because they had snuck into the Jesus movie the adoptionist, adoptionist doctrine. And the adoptionist doctrine liberals have built based upon this translation that I just gave you and that verse. But because to the pure of heart, all things are pure, we don't catch it because we don't think like that. But don't think that the liberals don't. I mean, they use that to their own advantage, our lack of understanding. Because an adoptionist believed that Yahushua was just a normal man. He didn't have a clue what was going on. He didn't know he was the son of Yahweh. He got adopted by the Ruach HaKodesh. Some say when the Ruach came at on him, then he was adopted. Then others say he was only adopted as the son of Yahweh at his resurrection. So that's the adoptionist view. And it's based upon this verse that liberal theologians use. And the poor translation is, and he was declared to be the son of Yahweh with power according to the Holy Spirit by his resurrection from the dead. And they twist it and they say, see, he was a normal man, but at his resurrection, he was declared to be the son of Yahweh. And this is slipped into our Hebraic restoration true name edition scriptures. And it's wrong. And it leads to this terrible doctrine of adoptionism. So, what does it really say? The Greek word here is chorizo, and it means to designate or to appoint. And what we see here is he is designated and appointed. But what they do is they slide in declared, declared the Son of God, which is totally different. Because he was designated and appointed. Because to say that he was declared the son of God implies, just like that Jesus movie in the 90s, that only at Yahushua's resurrection was he then to be considered the son of Elohim. And that monking with the text has caused more liberal commentary on this particular introduction than I care to imagine. And maybe some of you are aware of it, and maybe many of you aren't, because to us, the pure of heart, all things are pure. We wouldn't even think that, because our doctrine is established in the orthodoxy of the faith. But liberals, they take this and they run, and there is now more and more of that thinking that has crept into the institutionalized church and watered down the faith that was once delivered to the 
saints. Because in preparation for teaching Romans, I've been reading about um, some of the works of John Calvin and many other theologians from centuries bygone, and their faith was a lot more orthodox than we're led to think of traditional Christianity. They weren't opposed to the law the way traditional Christianity is opposed to the law. In fact, they spoke in high regard to the law in many, many instances. So what we've ended up in the 20th century in the institutionalized church oftentimes hasn't come from the great theological foundations of the Reformation era, which we are led to believe that it is orthodoxy, but it in fact is not even church orthodoxy because they have strayed so far. So let's get back on point here because monking with the bloody text has got huge ramifications. Huge ramifications. Now we're all of a sudden implying that Yahushua became the son of Elohim at the resurrection. Although he hadn't even been so beforehand, he didn't have a clue. That's outrageous to me, absolutely outrageous. And many of us don't even catch on to this thinking. But what we can see here, the point of verse 4 isn't that there was a time when Yahushua wasn't the son of Elohim. That's not the point of verse 4 but rather as it, at his resurrection was Yahushua decisively marked out. At his resurrection, he was decisively marked out to be the son of Elohim. So the point of verse 4 isn't that there was a time when Yahushua wasn't the son of Elohim, but at his resurrection was at the point where he was decisively marked out to be the son of Elohim. And the transition isn't from human to divine. Now, that's what the liberal commentators would have you believe. It's not that. He didn't make a transition from human to divine but from Moshiach the Son to Moshiach the reigning and ruling Son in glory. That's the transition. That's what verse 4 is having us key into in the orthodoxy of the faith. And really, if you think about it, crucifixion signaled the failed Messiah. What was the whole purpose of the journey on the road to Emmaus? He was crucified. He failed. That's what the, di the disciples believed, right? They believed that he was the failed Messiah. They left the middle of Passover feast, the week of unleavened bread. They left the feast despondent because they had a failed Messiah based upon the crucifixion. The crucifixion signaled a failed Messiah. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. But resurrection reversed the verdict, did it not? And there's the power of the gospel. There's the power of the orthodoxy that Shaul is trying to communicate clearly in verse 4. And it gets in my craw 
when these liberal commentators totally slide this in, declared to be the son of Elohim. And then we get Hebraic scriptures that take on that translation without question and don't realize that our whole liberal doctrine is built upon verse 4, declared. And that's why I'm spending the time on it, because we need to know what kind of nonsense is going on out there so that we can have a defense. Because the Christian people that put out the movie Jesus in the late 90s, they picked up on this translation and they made a movie about it. But me, even being a neophyte back then, I couldn't even sit in the room because I'm like, there's no way that he didn't know he was the Messiah. He knew he was Messiah. He was marked out from birth. That's not what this is talking about. It's a distinction from being the son, Messiah the son, to Messiah the reigning and ruling son in glory. That he was marked out specifically, decisively to be the son of Elohim at the resurrection. It's not that he wasn't before, but that's what marked him. Because you had a failed Messiah, crucifixion, but resurrection marked him out as the son of Elohim sitting at the right hand in glory. And that's what Yahushua communicated to the disciples on the road to Emmaus as they were experiencing a failed Messiah, so they thought. And he showed them, no. Look at verse 4. You see, it's powerful. This is the kind of stuff that just gets me riled up because I love to see how people want to unravel the word of Yahuwah to their own agenda and then we get back to the orthodoxy of the faith and you can just literally stand and then you stand. And that's powerful. I love that. I love that. So let's continue on now. Let's address this little one. This one comes from South Africa. Now I'm going to put the South Africans on the stand. They're usually good, you know, but I mean, the Messianic movement, there's quite a, quite a lot of um, South Africans that are in the orthodoxy of the faith. But what about his name? You've heard me as I go through Romans, Shaul. But what about Paul. It's like in the Hebrew roots of the Messianic movement, you can't say the name Paul. But it's pagan. It's Shaul or Sheol or Solas or, you know, something Hebraic, you know, and there you can't walk into a congregation and say Paul because then you're like, oh, he's so in the church still. But let's examine this, Shaul and Paul, okay? Because he actually does identify himself as Paulos as Paulos. And I know most of our Hebraic Bibles immediately change that to Shaul and Saulos, but it's usually Shaul. But he really actually did go by the name Paul, because Paul is not some new name for Shaul, as some translators would have us believe. Because diaspora Jews, Jews in the exile, commonly had a Hebrew name and a Roman Greek name. And we know Shaul, or Paul's Roman citizenship, citizenship excuse me, from Acts chapter 22, verse 28. He was a Roman citizen. So he would have had a Roman or a Greek name. Now, Hellenistic Jews in the first century were well known for having a prenomen, 
a praenomen, which means a personal name. They had a nomen, clan name, and they also had what was called a cognomen, a family name. So there was a personal name, a clan name, and a family name that was very common with Hellenistic Jews in the exile in the first century. And this was the very characteristic of a Roman citizen in the first century, which we know Paul was. Paulus was, in fact, his cognomen, his family name. Even the scriptures state that he was Saul, who was known as Paul. Acts chapter 13, verse 9. Read it for yourself. So now the South Africans came out with that translation. I think it's called the Sacred Name Scriptures. And it's, it's pretty good. Somebody here has the sacred name scriptures. But this is what they say about Paul and Saul. And I, I mean, I love, you know, I love a good conspiracy theory. I do. But I'm not going for a conspiracy theory just for the sake of a conspiracy theory if it's not founded in truth. So here's the conspiracy theory from the South Africans here in the sacred name scriptures. I'll quote it for you. Who changed the name of Shaul to Paul? Who changed the name of Shaul to Paul? They conclude that this was done, listen, to appease the Roman people who, quote, he took the name Paulus after the Roman hero of the time. He took the name Paulus after the Roman hero of the time. It sounds good, but it is total messianic propaganda. <laughs> it sounds good. And it gets you all Hebraic. Well, you, I'm not calling him Paul. It's Shaul. But it is total bull. I'm sorry, <laughs> but it's messianic propaganda. And there is no historical validity to that kind of nonsense whatsoever whatsoever. And like I say, I love a good conspiracy. But that one, I'm sorry, there is no historical validity to that whatsoever. And the scriptures that I've just mentioned to you already state that he was known as Saul and Paulus, Paul. So it's orthodoxy, when we go back and study what was going on with Roman citizenry in the first century, it's totally orthodox to call him Paul. Just as much as it is Saul, there is no conspiracy behind that. Verse 5, by whom we have received unmerited favor and the calling of an apostle for obedience to the faith that bears his name. Among the nations, among whom you were called by Yahushua, our Messiah. Now I'm going to pick on somebody else because I like to do that. And I'm going to pick on David Stern. Anybody got his commentary, his Bible here, which of course is the complete Jewish Bible. Because he is very confused as to who in fact is Paul's audience. Because he writes this. Listen. Much of what he, and of course he uses Shaul, 
writes is applicable to Gentiles. But understanding the book of Romans properly depends on determining which portions of it apply to everyone and which portions apply directly only to non-Jews. What? Much of what he, Shaul, writes is applicable to Gentiles. But understanding the book of Romans properly, according to David Stern, depends on determining which portions of it apply to everyone and which portions apply directly only to non-Jews. So let me get this right, David. What you're saying then is only parts of Romans is applicable to the Jews and other parts of Romans are applicable to Gentiles. This is called a divided kingdom reality and mentality, and it leads people astray, and you will never build up Zion that way. It divides. And that's the problem with the institutionalized church baggage that comes on in to the messianic propaganda, which is why I stand here on the threshold after a decade of being not only in the Hebrew roots and messianic movement, but a decade of being in the institutionalized church and say, the narrow road that leads to life has got to be decidedly different than the propaganda of religion that's out there. And that's where we end up at Torah to the Tribes, where we're at here. Because we question it, we question it, we question it. And you have to, because this is silliness. David, it's a letter. It was read to all. It was a letter. It was read to all. It's not some kind of theological treatise, is it? But seminary would have you build it up to be such, and you have the dividing wall. It was a letter that was read to all. Excuse me, I'm not reading that to you, catfish Gentile. But this guy over here, the Orthodox Jew, yes, he can stay. I'll read to him. No, whoever was there, it was read to, right? We, it becomes so divorced from the reality and the context of what we actually have in our hands. It's amazing to me. So now we continue on down. Let's look at the truth of defining gospel. The Hebrew word there, of course, is besorah, and the Greek word is evangelion, evangelion, the evangelical news, the good news, gospel. Where does it come from? The Septuagint tells us, that we would define gospel from Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah chapter 66. And whatever the context of it there is what it means. If it means that you can be lawless, stick up Christmas trees and run around looking for Easter eggs in the, in the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then I say, let's do it. But you won't find that in Isaiah chapters 40 through 66 whatsoever. So what does the gospel mean? Is it licensed to sin? Let's have a look and see what Isaiah tells us that gospel is about. I think that's biblical hermeneutics. 
That's solid ground, and that's how we should be. We should be mature enough to look at the biblical words and take them into the Scriptures and let the Scripture define the Scriptures. And that's the safe way to go. So the principal text for understanding gospel, Bessorah, of course, Isaiah 40 through chapter 66, where it's used in the context of proclaiming Zion or Zion's impending release from the exile. Zion is going to be released from the exile. So the gospel is intricately connected to Zion's release from chains. They're imprisoned out in the nations. They've been delivered to the nation's Elohim. And Yahuwah, the one true Elohim, is going to release them from the nations, take them from captivity, all 12 tribes and the sojourner that wants to join with them, leave all their pagan trash in the nations, burn it, break it down just like Abraham did to Terah's idols and come on back to Zion. That's the gospel message. It's real simple. That's what we're teaching. To think that the true gospel is anything but the proclamation of Israel's return from the nations is asinine when you read Isaiah 40 through 66. It's asinine. Anything but that. It's so simple. It's so clear. We have got to stay with the biblical truth. You see, a gospel catering to an egocentric relationship of grace is a what? It's a false gospel. That's the problem. We have a gospel today that's being preached that caters to an egocentric relationship of grace. And that's a false gospel according to the biblical definition of a gospel because its principal text is Isaiah chapters 40 through Isaiah's chapter 66. Why do you think the first question, think about it, the first question the disciples asked Yahushua post-resurrection was what? When, Master, when will you, at this time, restore the gospel? What's restoring the gospel? The kingdom to Israel. They asked him. That was their first question. It was a gospel question. Master, will you, at this time, restore the gospel? Because restoring the gospel is restoring the kingdom to Israel. That was their first question. Because that's the question of every believer should be. When are the exiles going to return from their pagan lands? Give up their pagan trash, their pagan idols, and come into the orthodoxy of the faith so we can get back to the Garden of Eden. From where we have been divorced and ravaged ever since in the nations. But now you've got people wanting to be lawless and staying in the nations because they're not serving the one true Elohim. They're serving the gods of the nations. They're serving themselves. It's idolatry. If you want to stay out in the nations, it's because you love idolatry. Because these nations are full of idols. Everywhere you look. Everywhere you look. And it's simply, you don't love the one true Elohim. You're either serving yourself, that self-idolatry, or you've just got caught up in the nations. Verse 7. To all that be in Rome, beloved of Yahweh, called to be Israelite saints, unmerited favor to you, and peace, shalom, from Yahweh our Abba. 
and the Savior, Yeshua, Yahusha, the Messiah. So the institutionalized church has acquired, we have to understand, the majority of its theology from a paganized view of Paul at the expense of the rest of the scripture. And this is troublesome. At the expense of the rest of the scripture and the textual and historical content of his letters. We need to look at that because it's very important. Look at verse 8. First, I thank my Elohim through Yahusha Messiah for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For Yahuwah is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests, verse 10, if at all possible, that I might have a prosperous journey by the will of Yahuwah to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both yours and mine. Verse 13. Now, I would not have you be ignorant, Israelite brothers, that oftentimes I purposed to come to you, but I was previously hindered, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among the nations. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the foreigners, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to proclaim the Besorah, the Evangelion, the gospel to you that are in Rome also. And verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Messiah, for it is the power of Yahuwah for salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek and the Aramean. Now, here again in the complete Jewish Bible, in Stern's Bible, he has a little bit of Jewish um, supremacy going on because he says to the Jew especially, but equally to the Gentile. No, not to the Jew especially. That's not what it says. But that's what Stern has in his Jewish supremacy. Because what this is talking about is not Jewish supremacy and Gentile denigration. What this is talking about is how the gospel spread. Think about it. It was explosive. But its nucleus was where? Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, it went to the nations, thereby to the, from the Jews to the Gentiles. It's talking about what? How the nucleus of the gospel was in Jerusalem, and then it expanded out to the nations. It's not talking about Jewish supremacy. It's not talking about Gentile denigration. It's talking about stewardship and responsibility as that gospel spreads. Stewardship and responsibility. Who had the most stewardship and responsibility demands upon them? The Jews, because they apparently knew the scriptures. They were under more 
stewardship and responsibility than those in the nations because it expanded from Jerusalem out to the nations. That's what this is talking about. Now we look at verse 17. For by the gospel is the righteousness of Yahweh revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, the, he, um, the Greek word, excuse me, the Greek word here is dikesune, dikesune, and it means the righteousness, or dikesune theo, the righteousness of Elohim. I want to look into that term, because there's three common interpretations for dikesune, dikesune, which is the Greek word for righteousness. Number one, what does this righteousness mean? Elohim's justice and his faithfulness to his covenant with Israel. That's one interpretation of what that righteousness means. Number two, it's a new positional standing that is imparted to the sinner that comes to faith. And number three, it's the activity of Yahweh as he intercedes on the half and behalf as if of his people. Does that make sense? So, dikasune theo, the righteousness of Elohim, is best understood as Yahweh's covenant justice as it relates to Messiah and the book of the covenant gospel message of returning the exiles back from the nations. And really, it encompasses all three things. Because those in the nations are being actively pursued by Yahuwah as he intercedes on their behalf. Number three, those in the nations, when they repent, they have a positional placement with Yahuwah now, don't they? And number one, then Elohim's justice and faithfulness then comes upon them as they've returned to Zion. And that's what happens. Dikasune Theo, the righteousness of Elohim. It's powerful, just stopping, pausing, and taking in that for effect. Now let's look at Isaiah, Yeshayahu, the prophet, in chapter 46, verse 12, because he defines the um, Hebrew word zadakah, righteousness, perfectly. Isaiah 46, verse 12 Yahusha, salvation, Yahusha won't delay in bringing Israel back from the nations. He won't delay in his placement of them in Zion because that's all about his glory. That's truly the gospel message. Look at it, what it says in Isaiah 46 verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted that are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off. It's not going to be out in the exile. And my Yahusha, my salvation, shall not tarry. And I will place Yahusha, salvation, in Zion for my Israel, for Israel, my glory. Amen. That's the gospel message right there, isn't it? Isaiah chapter 46, verse 12. We have this phrase in verse 17 of chapter 1 of Romans, from faith to faith. In the Hebrew, emunah to emunah. 
And it means either from the faith of the patriarchs to the faith of the disciples, or it's used as a metaphor for a high degree of faith. So, so what does it mean? It's right standing with Yahuwah is really our right standing with Yahuwah is from faith from start to finish, is it not? For me to have right standing with Yahuwah, from the beginning, it's very inception, it took faith. And for me to stay there takes what? Faith. From faith to faith. You're never going to have right standing with Yahuwah if it's not from faith, its inception point, to faith when you die or are transformed. It's always about faith. It's from faith to faith. The moment that you lose faith, you lose everything. You lose your right standing with Yahweh. It's all about faith. Keep the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Now, this doesn't mean, this does not mean, as many Christian commentators will state, from the faith of the Old Testament to the faith of the glory of the New Testament, from faith to faith. We've moved from the faith of the Old Testament to the faith of the New Testament. We've moved from the faith of that old archaic God to the faith of Jesus Christ. We've got a new God. That's what Marcion actually um, said in the first century. The heretic Marcion. Well, there was this old, vengeful Old Testament God, and now we've got this New Testament Christos, Christ, the new God. That was the heresy of Marcion that actually went in and monked with the book of Romans and the majority of Paul's letters. And he was proven to be a heretic. And many of the translations today, the New International Version, the New American Standard, they actually have the monked text from Marcion in them that they are serving up to the saints. They don't realize that they got the translations which have been monked with because they're not questioning what Marcion did in the first century. It's not like all of a sudden we've got now from grace to grace, we've got from faith to faith, we've got this new dispensation. So, in fact, John Calvin and Martin Luther, they took this verse to mean something entirely different based upon 1 Corinthians chapter 3.18. They believed that from um, faith to faith, it meant about believers growing. They were growing and maturing in their faith, which I would have to agree with. I would have to agree with. And they said this, We all with an unveiled faith, beholding... In a mirror, the glory of Yahweh are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. That's what it's about, isn't it? It's being transformed in this journey that we walk, growing in faith more and more as we go down this narrow road, that we are the ones that are being transformed. We are being justified as we become more and more righteous, as we take upon, as image bearers, the image of Elohim. You see, depending on the depth and speed of your commitment, depending upon the depth and speed of my commitment to Yahuwah and the depth and speed of our knowledge of his word, the righteousness of Yahuwah increases in us, doesn't it? If you're not that committed to Yahuwah, if you're not that committed to his word, then your speed of development is going to be what? Slow. 
But if you are just radical, if you're jihad about the gospel, and if you are jihad about his word, which we should be, our growth is going to be exponential. It's just going to be light years ahead of people. Light years ahead. Because we're just, you just, you just got to, mm. that, I mean, what can I say? I mean, devour it. I mean, it's like devour the word, devour everything that you can about Yahweh, and then you're always pursuing. And you never, you can't be stationary. I mean, we have such little time. I've got to be pursuant. I am a pursuing person. I'm always being pursuing, 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 never stationary. It's this ongoing activity, ongoing in my life. Habakkuk says this. In the second chapter, in the fourth verse. See, the being who is puffed up is not upright, but the just in his faith shall live. Listen to that. The just in his faith shall live. Now, I love this in the Hebrew. Ba'emunato yechai. In his faith live. That's what it literally says. In his faith live, or in the Septuagint translation, out of my faith will live. That's what it means. Out of my faith will live. Rather than emphasizing the individual's faith or faith prescribed by Elohim, Paul says, out of faith shall live. Or faith brings life to be lived, doesn't it? That's what faith does. Faith brings life to be lived. And now you understand why everybody out there that is not in the faith is not living life. They have to therefore what? Enter into debauchery to feel anything. Because they're dead. Because you're never alive until you're in the faith. Because it's the faith that brings forth the life. You can try and get stimuli from all of the temptations of the flesh, but it leaves you deader than deader than dead. But we know that faith brings life to be lived. That's what Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 tells us in the Hebrew. Faith brings life to be lived. None of this discounts that there is a faith that Yahweh requires of us when we follow him. No, heaven forbid. Look at verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of Yahuwah is revealed from heaven against all, not some, but all wickedness and all, not some, all unrighteousness of men. All unrighteousness of men. No men are escaping. There's no liberal idea here, but all men. It's simple. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which could be known. Oh, everybody, everybody has an opportunity. It could be known. Just making sure. Don't want any liberal ideas, any universalism slipping in here in the faith. Very clear. Just to make sure. Because that which could be known about Yahuwah, it is manifest in them. Yes, it is. It is. It is manifest in them, for Yahweh has shown it to them. For the invisible things coming from him, from the creation of the world, they are clearly seen. 
being understood by the things of creation, even his eternal power and divine nature, so that they are without excuse. And you have got to understand, we live in the vacuum of excuses. Everything's an excuse. You can literally have your own server with confidential military information and get caught and you can make excuses for it and get away with it and run for president. All because of excuses. Excuses. There's always an excuse for everything. But there isn't an excuse for what Paul is talking about. And I will make that very clear as we now proceed. Because Yahweh, as creator, he has revealed, listen, I make no bones about this. Yahweh, as creator, has revealed enough of himself in the glory of his creation, even placing onto mankind his image bearers that we're all without excuse. All of us, when we stray from the creator's divine standards of morality. I will not budge on this. This is so clear. This is the orthodoxy of our faith. And anybody who says other and tries to make an excuse is preaching another gospel of universalism and excuse, though it may be shrouded in compassion, is still excuse. And it is not tolerated in the orthodoxy of the faith. But what about the little aborigine? What about the aborigine? But surely the aborigine never heard the gospel. This is what you say to me as you try to make excuses. Shaul's point, or Paul's point, wherever he or she is, running around in a loincloth. They have enough of the divine knowledge placed within him or her to know that the base sins are an affront to the Creator. And those base sins are idolatry and sexual immorality. And everybody on the planet knows that those base sins of idolatry and sexual immorality are an absolute affront to the Creator. And all of the world's false religions, they all have with them, tied to them, what? The base sins of idolatry and sexual immorality. Temple prostitutes, ritual harlots, it's all interconnected. And as we will get further on, we will even find the beastal acts of homosexuality are in fact nothing more than self-worship idolatry. That's all it is. You are worshiping yourself. You're an idolater. That's why you have manifested in 
sexual immorality because they are the base sins that everybody on the planet, no matter where you are, has it implanted in their DNA that if you truly want to seek the Creator, you will lay down idolatry and sexual immorality. And then if you seek Him, He will reveal His resurrection to you. But you have got to lay down sexual immorality and idolatry if you truly want to seek the Creator. Because He has imparted that within all, all mankind. All of us. And I'm a testimony of that. I'm a testimony of that. Nobody needed to come to me and tell me about the resurrection. All I needed to do was be absolutely convinced that the idolatry that I was involved in, the sexual immorality that I was involved in was wrong and that it was a front to the creator that I believe created me. And when I finally confessed that and admitted that, then, when, then he brought somebody into my life to reveal the resurrection of the son. That's how it works, and that's the truth, and I will not compromise on that because this is the true gospel. And he says it right here. He says it right here. Because idolatry and sexual immorality are the base sins that are an affront to the Creator. Listen, but their foolish hearts have become darkened. I mean, show me a native that's not involved in and fallen into the base sins of either idolatry and sexual immorality. Show me. Because everyone's always using about the native in a loincloth, but then when you go and look at the native in the loincloth, they are totally sexually immoral, and they are involved in idolatry. Right? You see, there's a whole sector of humanity that actively suppress the truth of the one true Elohim, and most of that base active suppression occurs in third world cultures instigated through idolatry. Psalm 97 verse 7, put to shame all, put to shame are all they that served carved images, who boast themselves in idols, worship him, all you Elohim. We're to worship the one true Elohim, but the nations are under the judgment and they're worshiping the fallen Elohim through sexual immorality, which is idolatry. You see, and in the West, knowledge of the one true Elohim is actively suppressed by the government, is it not? It's actively suppressed by Hollywood. Knowledge of the one true Elohim is actively suppressed through entertainment, drugs, alcohol, perversion. It's basically what? Hedonism. It's all wrapped around what? Active suppression of Yahuwah is always wrapped around sexual immorality and idolatry. Hollywood does not want you to know the one true living Elohim. So it's going to throw at you movie stars. Stars. Well, there's your idolatry, which is then enwrapped with sexual immorality. And then you will go off into the base sins yourself and either be a heterosexual in judgment or 
homosexual in judgment, which is all sexual immorality. Because that is what distracts you and it suppresses the truth, Romans 1, of the true Elohim. That's the world that we live in today. It's hedonism. Mankind attempting to hold back the truth of the one Elohim. And because of Yahweh's natural revelation, mankind is held responsible. But don't be delusional in thinking that Yahweh's natural revelation is sufficient to accomplish his salvation. It's not. Its purpose has always been to what? To convict and to seek. That's the purpose of his natural revelation, is to convict so that you will seek. And then he will bring forth resurrection revelation. But you've got to lay down the base sins first. And they don't because they want to suppress the truth of the one true Elohim. Yahweh's self-revelation has always been present since creation. But because mankind has chosen not to honor him, they've fallen into sin. Look at verse 21. Because that, when you knew Yahweh, they esteemed him not as Elohim. Neither did they show thanks, but became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart became darkened. Claiming themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible Elohim into an image made like corruptible man, such as birds and four-footed beasts and other creeping things. I mean, you say it, it's not like we're, we're bowing down here. Well, we're not really bowing down to idols. We're in the West. We're civilized, right? Hmm. But the West has changed, has it not? I mean, with all the immigration, migration, the West has changed. The idols that used to be in the nations, they're now in the West. There's voodoo dolls in convenience stores. There's Buddhas waiting for their sacrificial bow down when you go into Chinese restaurants. The idols of the nations, because of immigration and migration, they're all here. Have you gone into a Korean store? Have you gone into, you know, some of these Indian stores? There's idols everywhere. Yeah, I'd like the Kung Pao chicken without the Buddha, please. I mean, we stopped going into a Chinese restaurant years ago, Quan's here in town, because it's got like a 30-foot Buddha right there where they place your order in his arms. When it, I mean, it's right, it's outrageous. That's idolatry. It's in our midst everywhere we go. It didn't used to be a hundred years ago, but the West has now taken on that idolatry. It's all acceptable. 150 years ago, a Christmas tree being erected in the sanctuary of a church? Outrageous. In fact, it was illegal in America. Now, they erect it right there in the, in the sanctuary. No problem, no thoughts. You see how this lukewarmness just becomes cold, right? So that's why we've got to be firecrackers. That's why we've got to be hot. Because these dragons, these Buddhas, these sirens, they're in convenience stores, restaurants. I mean, halal meat. 
You got to be careful. We stop buying. We stop buying a milk brand, and you've got to be careful because even the Jews, they'll kosher some meat, and then they'll have the halals do it too. Halal meat has been offered to an idol. It's meat sacrificed to an idol. You can't be eating that stuff. Halal, the Muslim um, halal meat sacrificed to idols. Meats. H-A-L-L-A-L, maybe one L. I always like to double L. But there's, there's handbooks to idolatry, not to mention Disney. I mean, that's idolatry on steroids, isn't it? It's the infiltration of the death culture, even in fashion, even in our clothing. Oh, it's all about having a skull and crossbones on your clothing whenever you can. It's the death culture. It's voodoo magic death cult. You know, that's what it is. It's that sex cult magic, idolatry. There's never been a time when believers should be more discerning and vigilant when it comes to idolatry. Never been a time. Never in the West as there is today. We have to be more discerning and vigilant of idolatry than ever before. Got to see, what's a graven image, you know? Things like that. So anyway, look at verse 24. Therefore, Yahuwah also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of Yahuwah into a lie. And they worshiped and served the creation more than the creator, Baruch Shemo, who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. So again, verse 24. Yahweh, he won't let you just sail headlong into destruction. He won't let you sail headlong into destruction. He'll actually help you along the way. Oh, he will. If you decide to sail your ship down the waters of destruction, he will literally push your ship to the falls of annihilation. He will help you get to annihilation faster to get it over with. Oh, he'll help you along the way. That's the kind of Elohim we serve. So if you do jump into those waters, you better be prepared to go over the falls a lot quicker than you anticipate. And that's what happens. And that's called death. I've seen it. People just think, oh, you know, I'm going to dabble. Yeah, I'm a believer. I'm going to dabble. You know, I've been orthodox for a while. But, you know, oh, okay. You decide to do that? Oh, he'll literally push you uh, and you'll die. Mm. Why? He's hoping to push you over that fall so that you'll see your peril, that you'll automatically, you'll see the peril right before your face, that you'll awaken that sinner will awaken to the imminent danger that's right before them and they'll repent and then get pulled out. And if not, then they're destroyed and that's what it is because he cares for us. So you can never compare yourself as a believer to somebody that doesn't know Yahuwah. You can never ever think that you can get away with what an unbeliever can get away because once you're called, you can never go back. Once you put your hand to the plow, you can never look back. It's serious because he will literally push you towards destruction in the hopes as a child that you will see the imminent danger and repent or you're dead. 
That's a serious calling, is it not? A serious calling for some of the youth that I see that come into the faith and then they monk around and start messing around with stuff out there. You, you, you don't realize the commitment that you made. You're, to, you've, you're, you're held to a higher standard. It will be your very life. You don't have time to be messing around with that stuff at all, at all. Look at verse 26. For this cause, Yahweh gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural sexual relations into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural sexual relationship with the woman, they burned in their lust one towards another, men with men, committing shameful acts and receiving back in their own selves repayment for their error. You see, all sexual perversion is rooted in the denial of Yahuwah as creator. And you sow that and you can't reap eternal life. All sexual perversion is rooted in the denial of Yahuwah as creator. You sow that and you won't reap eternal life. In the Apocrypha, in Wisdom 14.12, it is written, For the idea of making idols was the beginning of fornication, and the invention of them was the corruption of life. And people will be like, Don't label me, Mabel. (laughs) Don't label me. But homosexual activity is labeled by Paul. He labels it as paropusin, against nature. Against nature. You see, the cultural and historical excuse used by liberal commentators, it simply isn't valid. It simply isn't valid. You can't say that Paul's verdict on homosexuality is to be viewed within a historical and culturally conditioned vacuum and therefore it's not morally valid anymore. You can't say that. You see, Paul's condemnation of homosexuality, it's primarily more, it's, it's, um, excuse me, when we look at that text, verse 26 through to and verse 26, verse 26 and verse 27, Paul's condemnation of homosexuality isn't primarily moral, is it? It's theological. It's theological. They worshipped and served the creation more than the creator. That's not moral. That's theological. The problem that he has with it is theological. So today, people come back with the excuse, well, oh, you know, you've got to look at the, the historical and the cultural context of what it was, and our culture is different than that. But, and it's like, but that's not his argument. His argument is theological. Let's continue on, because this all comes down to tolerance, doesn't it? You see, and tolerance doesn't require abandoning biblical commandments or one's opinions on political or public policy choices. Because people will throw that tolerance out and you feel like, oh, oh, yeah. Well, no. Let's understand the argument here. Let's understand what's going on and then we will stand. We will stand and not be intimidated by those 
out there that would try and use a moral argument. Because this is a theological issue. And the moment governments try to legislate morality, it's the fall of the republic, Roman or otherwise, is it not? Is it not? You see, tolerance does not require me abandoning my biblical adherence to the commandments. It doesn't require me abandoning my opinions because I will not tolerate my faith being encroached on by the heathen. That I will not tolerate. Tolerance is how we choose to react towards humanity's diverse groups with love, without condoning unbiblical behavior, or conversely, with violence and belligerence. Well, I'm going to choose love, but I'm not going to condone unbiblical behavior. I'm not going to be violent. I'm not going to be belligerent. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to condone unbiblical behavior. You see, Yahweh simply is the creator of life. If what you're doing doesn't bring forth life, then you're involved in idolatry and sexual immorality. Because Yahweh is the Elohim of life. Are you bringing forth life or not? It's really that simple. Because Satan is an angel of light, the god of this world, and he brings forth death. And by their fruit, you shall know them. It's really not that complicated. Corey, would you be able to turn the heat off out in the corridor as well? It's really not that complicated when you look at it that way. Are you producing life in your activities? The battle lines are drawn based upon the Elohim of life and the Elohim of death. Satan or Yahweh. You see, if sex becomes disassociated from a biblical purpose, think about it. If sex becomes disassociated from a biblical purpose, then all the abuses that are contained in Leviticus 20 will be done in plain sight and they become acceptable to the culture. And that is where we live today. That is where we live today. When people say that condoning and um, when people say that condemning homosexuality is wrong, they don't realize that that's a moral statement, not a legal statement. They don't realize that that's a moral statement, not a legal statement. There's many laws down the annals of history, more recently for, but largely against homosexuality. But saying that condemning homosexuality is wrong. That's a, that's a moral. It's a moral issue. That's a moral issue. By whose standard is something right, and by whose standard is something wrong, and what justifies that standard as being valid, right? These are the things that I ask, because this issue and situation that we seem to come up in our culture, especially when we talk about Romans chapter one. But as believers, because this is a moral standard, it's set forth by Yahweh. Through his word. If it were a legal standard, that would be different. But it's not. And it never will be in the hearts and minds of his people. Men don't legislate morality. 
And like I said, the moment that you let men legislate morality, it's the fall of the republic. And that's what happened to the Roman Empire, and that is what's happening in the U.S. of A. You've let men legislate morality. You've departed from the faith if you allow them to do that. And you cannot be intimidated. You cannot be intimidated. Tolerance, and you get all intimidated. No, you don't get intimidated. Condemning homosexual practice as a sin is not discriminatory. It's not discriminatory. Not in a legal sense, but it is one in a spiritual and moral sense. And as such, you're free to condemn it. But people don't under, they don't want you want to understand the difference between legal and spiritual and moral. So they intimidate you with legal. But you can't legislate the scriptures. You can't legislate morality on me. Now, if I do an illegal act towards a group of people, then, then you can come at me legally. But you cannot, will not, and cannot tell me how to believe. You cannot condemn me based upon my beliefs, based upon the scriptural code of conduct. And you will have to tolerate that. Because I will not tolerate you infringing upon the word of Yahweh. That's how we stand as believers in this fallen, sick, and twisted world of compromise and tolerance because people don't even understand the arguments that they're trying to bring forth. Did you listen to some of the foolishness at this women's march last week? They don't even understand what they're demonstrating about. They don't even understand the argument. They've got no argument, even politicians that were there. And when you question it, it's all like out here. Nothing's tangible. Nothing's connected to anything written. It's all emotion, tolerance, persecution. All of these abstract terms. Because S.A. Tan lives in the realm of magnification and imagery. And that's all they can do. And believers cannot cow down to magnification and imagery of fear. So that you draw back. Because there is no more time in the history of mankind than believers have to stand up for truth have to stand up for righteousness, and have to stand up for what is written right here to the Romans in the first chapter. Don't be intimidated. Condemning homosexual practice as a sin is not discriminatory in a legal sense whatsoever. But it is one in a spiritual and moral sense, and as such, you are free to condemn it. Homosexual activity, according to the Bible, is a violation of Yahweh's created order. It's a departure from the true knowledge and worship of Elohim. Conclusively, homosexuality is idolatry as men and women worship themselves. They worship themselves. It's decreed tovar, an abomination 
Because by their homosexuality, they've rejected Yahweh's creative authority, thereby committing idolatry against him as an act of gross self-worship. Think about it. You see, the saddest result is that homosexuality in itself brings about a feeling of self-betrayal and hopelessness, and as as an estranged and created being, condemns him or herself to a lonely existence, walking alone without the comfort and guidance of their creator. It's the opposite of what Yahweh desired in the garden, to walk and talk in fellowship with his sons and daughters. And there's a loneliness that is only known when you depart in such a manner. But it's not merely condemned by the Bible, but also regarded as parapushin against nature, coming under strict condemnation by the pagan philosophers of old, like Plato. Now, why don't they tell you that in the universities of higher learning? Or they'll pick out the Bible and say, oh, the Bible is horrible and condemning of homosexuality, as they'll teach the liberal arts, not realizing that down the annals of history, Plato and the Greek pagan philosophers, they condemned it too. It's been condemned for millennia. Philo in his special laws... 339. Just listen to this. This is what I call sexual agriculture. Just listen. Just just because this perfectly describes the act. Sexual agriculture. And let the man who is devoted to the love of boys submit to the same punishment, since he pursues that pleasure which is contrary to nature. And since As far as depends upon him, he would make the cities desolate, void and empty of all inhabitants, wasting his power of propagating his species, and moreover being a guide and teacher of those greatest of all evils unmanliness and effeminate lust, stripping young men of the flower of their beauty and wasting their prime of life in effeminacy, which he ought rather, on the other hand, to train to vigor and acts of courage. And last of all, because, like a worthless husbandman, he allows fertile and productive lands to lie fallow contriving that they will continue barren and labors night and day at cultivating that soil from which he never expects any produce at all. Sexual agriculture. He's spilling his seed in a field of barrenness wasting all of his masculinity trying to hoe and plow that ground and it will never produce a crop when he could be out cultivating produce that would bring in a harvest for a city and a town. That is a wasted life according to the ancient pagan philosophers. Sexual agriculture. 
What a husbandman that is. Isn't that, isn't that, I mean, it really describes it again. The creator of life or a barren field of destruction. It's evident that even approval of the homosexual lifestyle falls under the category of sin. Because in Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 it says this, Put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Sexual lust and fantasy, which is pornography today, and I can't tell you how many people in the ministry and sitting in ministry deal with this and because they don't deal with this. Do you know what I mean? They deal with this because they don't deal with it. Sexual lust and fantasy, both homosexual and heterosexual, are sinful according to Yahweh's word. Now, on the other hand, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, it assures us that temptation is not sin, but it's that we don't sin. Right? No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. It's what you do once you're tempted. That's the thing. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Romans 1.28 And even as they did not like to retain Yahweh in their knowledge, Yahweh released them to a wasted mind to do things that are improper, being filled with all unrighteousness and fornication. You've got to understand, I spent so much time on homosexuality because to tell you the truth, I have been so disappointed with pastors that I highly respected in the past when they got to Romans chapter 1. How they would sidestep this issue. They would sugarcoat it or just buzz right through it because they're not willing to stand and I lose so much respect that when I saw this, I'm like, I will stand because I cannot do that. And understand, I got into the hairdressing and barber business when I was 17 years old. I have a lot of experience with homosexuality. Some of the kindest, most loving people in my life and the best friends that I've had have been homosexuals. Some of the kindest, most caring people. You have to love the sinner and hate the sin. And some of the most hateful, mean-spirited, wicked people have been heterosexual. In the most grossest perversions of pornography, and filth and despicableness, despicableness have been heterosexual. It is not my place to judge the individual, but it is my place to teach the word and condemn the act. And to tell the people of Yahweh to stand because you cannot be intimidated by the world that would try to infringe and say you have to be tolerant of sin. 
But there's one sin that Yahweh hates above all, and it's not homosexuality. It's pride. Because I have known homosexuals that have come to faith, and they've shared with me, they've shared with me their upbringing, why they have had chosen that path. And they've shared, and some of the most wonderful stories that I've heard. But you know what? A homosexual, somebody that's involved in sexual immorality, Yahweh does not hate that like he hates pride. Because there's still a moment where they can return and repent. But a prideful person, that person doesn't believe that they need any help. That's why Yahweh hates pride above all other sin. So this isn't trying to target a particular sin. It's that Shaul or Paul addresses it because it was rampant in Corinth. It was rampant in Achaia. It was rampant in these regions and he brings it up. And now, thousands of years later, when you read and teach Romans, you have an obligation to teach the truth. Not to skip over it. The scripture says what the scripture says. And you can't be um, influenced by a liberal culture. You have to look at the scripture as a whole. And all that being said, way too often you'll find believers way too quick to condemn homosexuality with vigor. But then they turn a, a blind eye to inappropriate heterosexual activities and sex outside of marriage. But both come under the same strict standard of biblical judgment. Both do. So let's be clear. This isn't about targeting a people group. This is about teaching truth that sexual immorality and idolatry are linked to suppressing the truth of the Creator, Yahweh. But remember, the Romans... This letter to the Romans was written against the backdrop of either Corinth or Achaia where gross sexual sin was prevalent. There was temple harlotry, ritual prostitution, homosexuality, bestiality. All of those things were going on within those communities and that's why Shaul, Paul, is addressing it head on. And now we close with we see in verse 30, he talks about now the wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, fighting, deceit, evil thinking. These people, they're whisperers, backbiters, haters of Yahweh, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of all evil things. They're disobedient to parents without knowledge or discernment. They are covenant breakers, cold, without love, they are unforgiving and they are ruthless. These, the, right here, Paul gives us an ingredient list for being an unbeliever. This is the ingredient list for being an infidel. Who knowing the judgment of Yahweh, that those who commit such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same, but also take pleasure in others that do the same too. Meaning, if you agree and condone in a behavior, then you are just as guilty of that behavior, even if you don't participate in it. By you condoning something, you might as well be doing it. 
don't do it, don't condone it. You have to stand up. And sometimes that means that you're going to have to take a stand within your families. You can't condone sexual immorality within your families just to keep the peace because then you're guilty of that gross sexual sin too. I've seen a lot of families do that, condoning it condoning it or not addressing it or letting it just fester. You have to tackle these things head on. Otherwise, you are guilty yourselves before the Creator Elohim. All that to say this. He addresses these incidents because they were rampant. And we can understand that truly all mankind falls under the judgment. But there's one sin that is more evil and wicked and abhorrent to Yahuwah than all of those that have been listed. And that is the sin of pride. But ultimately, everybody has got enough within their DNA to know that Yahuwah is the one true Elohim. And that if they seek him, they would have to lay down sexual immorality and idolatry. And then he would reveal the resurrection to him. But those in the nations, whether they're an aborigine chipping on a stone with a flint tool, they have got enough revelation of the Creator inside of them to know not to be involved in sexual immorality and idolatry. And at that point, they would then be seeking Him. He would reveal Himself. So this is the time. This is the time. We only have one life. And what we choose... That's the choice we make, and we can clearly see that here, that this is the time that Paul is speaking to those in the audience of his letter and saying, you've got to get right, because if not, Yahweh will push you over that waterfall to destruction in the hopes that as you see that imminent danger coming, that you'll repent and return to the fold. Questions, comments, anybody at all? Kind of a heavy introduction to Romans, but he's got it all right there. All right there. Steve in the back. Great. All right. Oh, yes. Question. Uh, you said uh, that the, the pride was like the big, the big problem. And I think that the apathy is, it like holds hands with pride. And if you... Realize you don't have to change the world, but you stand up for, for what's right in your individual circles, in your families, in your business places, uh, especially with this thing of homosexuality or, uh, you know, debauchery or idolatry. If you take a stand in your little circle, no matter where you are, just as Paul did, look at how his letters changed the world. Mm-hmm. You're not asked to change the world. You're asked to change yourself. You have to change your immediate circumstances to lead your children, even if you have to lead your own parents. And I think that is what, I think that's what you're explaining very well, is when you are apathetic, there's the danger. When you do nothing, then we are nothing. Then there, we have nothing to stand upon. I think you said it very well. You know, because that is, there's pride in that. There's pride in being apathetic. Mm-hmm. And then you watch everything fall away from you because you're, you're gutless, you're a coward. And that's what we see. We see more and more in this generation cowardness, spinelessness, exactly, being afraid. And that is where I've said I've been so disappointed with pastors that have been afraid to teach Romans chapter 1 
to their congregations. Big pastors, pastors with big churches that have been trained right, but then will just let it go because they know that they just don't want to come across um, as offensive. Well, the gospel is an offensive message. A crucified and risen Messiah, that's offensive. And you know what? An Elohim that holds all mankind accountable for his general revelation, all mankind, that's offensive to a universalistic, liberal, theological mind, which we have now come against in this very faith of ours in this 21st century. So, Abba, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the writings of the Apostle Paul. And we thank you for this time in Yahusha's mighty name. Amen. 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 Stick around.